Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome. My name is Dirk, the lead pastor here at Encounter Church, and I just want to begin with a picture. Uh, this is what our, uh, our youth director, Josh, took, I think, yesterday. It's just a few of our students who are up north, northern Michigan, for our winter retreat, just for the high school students and some of their leaders. And I just want to say how awesome this is uh, for me personally. Um, it was on one of these winter retreats that I first experienced the love of God, the power of God in my life. And it was very much, uh, very much what happened there on that weekend that kind of propelled me and my faith and even led to the founding of this church with my wife in, uh, in our living room about nine years ago. So it's just an incredibly powerful thing. Please continue to honor them, lift them up in prayer as they learn what it means to do life together and keep Jesus at the center, a couple of our, uh, of our values. All right, we're in part two of this series right now called Un the sun. And, uh, and before we get into the content of the series, I want to share with you a story that took place, true story, just this past Thursday. It was one of those times, parents, you know what I'm talking about, the kids go to bed early, right? So like they're, they're in their long day, so they're tucked away, they're snoozing, they're done, they're gone, okay? They're upstairs. Now it's Thursday night and my wife had actually joined a small group here at church that met offsite, so she went to go do her thing. And so I'm alone in the house, you know, besides the kids sleeping upstairs. And I reach for the remote control and immediately there's like this adrenaline rush. You know what I mean? Because I can watch anything that I want to on TV. As I push that red Netflix button, it's like the options just come at me. Okay, and I'm just, I'm overwhelmed. Church, research shows that the average person spends 19 minutes before selecting a TV show. Church, I am far above average. <laughs> It's the number of options is starting to get to me as I'm like, and as I'm participating in the scroll, you know what I'm talking about? And you're just like looking for that perfect show to watch. The one I can't watch when my wife is around because she's not going to be into it, but I can do like anything except 14 years of marriage. I know I'm not going to watch one of the shows that we have together. I'm not going to do that. So anything else besides that, and I'm doing, I'm doing the scroll. And I'm not looking for a TV show, right? Because I don't want to get invested and I don't want to have to like have different shows to watch or something like in different rooms. I don't know. Marriage is important, so we want to watch the same thing. So it's going to be like a movie or one-off. And I'm simultaneously looking for like that, that action thriller that she's not going to be able to stand, right? I'm looking for that thing that's probably directed by Michael Bay where everything just blows up all the time. But at the same time, at the same time, I'm like, I, I, I want to watch like a documentary or something that's going to make me smart at a dinner party or maybe standing on stage with some of you. And I can like quote it and I'm like, oh, that guy's educated or that guy, you know, he pays attention to stuff. Preferably a documentary directed by Michael Bay with blowing stuff up all throughout it. And that's what I'm looking for. 19 minutes comes and goes. It's like nothing. I'm still, I'm in the scroll. I am not exaggerating. I'm not making this up. My wife not only went to her small group, but then she went to Kohl's and then came back and I still had not found a single thing to watch. Now, some of you have been there. You've done the scroll. And that's, that's actually that process, that thing that I was participating in. That's what our author this morning the teacher from Ecclesiastes, that's what he's got a name for it in the Bible, a phrase that's called chasing the wind. Like you're chasing after something that, that you think is going to be there. It should be there, but it's not actually there. 
Like chasing after the wind, I can see what the wind does. It blows on the trees. I can see the leaves fall down. I got to rake them up later. Uh, it, the wind blows against my body on the chilly, you know, fall slash winter air. And I'm like, okay, that's real. So it must be out there. And then once I start chasing after that window, I grab onto it and it's like there's nothing there at all. I can chase after it, but I just can't grab onto it. I am a wind chaser. And I don't think I'm the only person in the room this morning. It might be helpful for you just to kind of think about in what areas are you also doing the scroll or chasing after the wind. I only lost my Thursday night. The story that we're going to hear from a guy loses his whole life doing that, the scroll, chasing after the wind. Some of you are going, like, like I get that. The way that I chase after security, the way that I have gotten just a, a little bit I, I've, I've accumulated a little bit and there's like this rush. And I think if a little bit is good, more is better. And so I just try to like hoard and accumulate more and more. And it's not like a financial thing, but it's like a, a nutrition and supplements and vitamins and health. It's like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna hoard it all together and you'll never actually grab onto it. You'll never actually catch it because what you're chasing isn't security. What you're chasing is more security, and you'll never actually grab on to that. Some of you, security like isn't necessarily the thing. Maybe it's the image that you project, the image that people have of you in the world, and you're constantly monitoring it because you want to be the kind of person who is known for or the person who does that. And it doesn't matter what you have to do to, in order to live there, drive that, or be able to buy this You'll get it and you spend so much time. You devote so much of your life monitoring how people see your life. You actually miss out on the opportunity to live your life. It's like chasing after the wind. You can pursue it, but you're never able to grab onto it. Maybe security image for some of us, especially in the church, sometimes I think it's like approval. I live for the attaboys, for the well-dones, for the way to go. It doesn't matter if it's the approval of people close to me. It doesn't matter if it's the approval of critics, the approval of a boss, the approval of an employee, the approval of your kids. Living for the applause, you will die by their criticism. You live for something like that. Listen, listen. It's chasing after the wind, there's always more. It fades too quickly again and again, and we're on repeat. So there's got to be a different way. What we're going to do right now is we're going to sit down at the feet of a master wind chaser in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. There's Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. You can go ahead and flip to it if you'd like to follow along. The words are going to be on the screen behind me. We're phone friendly, so the Bible app is great as well. We're going to go to Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and in part 2 here uh, of the series. I love this. Warren Buffett, uh, one of the world's best investors, probably the best investor maybe who ever lived, he said that it's good to learn from your mistakes it's better to learn from other people's mistakes. <laughs> and that's what we're doing here, is we're sitting at the feet of the master wind chaser, and we're just gonna hear about some of the ways that he messed up his life in order for us to live our life 
better in light of it all. So Ecclesiastes 2, and we're going to kick it off here in verse 4. And just let me read uh, a few verses now, and it's going to read a bit like a list, but, but dial it in here. He says, the teacher says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. He made a garden. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born into my house. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all of this, my wisdom stayed with me. Let me just ask, as he's rattling off what kind of feels like a list, like a resume kind of a, of his accomplishments, a Wikipedia page of the things that he's done, does he sound arrogant to anybody? Just, just a little bit annoying. Like he's just, he's rattling these things off. I want to make a, a couple comments. The first thing is, remember he's addressing a group like this. The book is Ecclesiastes. We heard this last week because it comes from the word of the name of the book, Ecclesia, a gathering, an assembly. It's actually the first word that was used to describe the church in the first century in the New Testament times. So what we have here, this, this is a pretty good picture about what he was doing. He's the speaker to the Ecclesia. That's why it's Ecclesiastes, the gathering. And he's addressing all of them. And he's saying, hey, listen, this is, these are some of the, the things that I have accomplished. And he and he lists right through them. And maybe it sounds a little obnoxious. But at the same time, the people gathering around him, the ecclesia, you all, you know that even though it's obnoxious and annoying in all of his achievements and successes in life, you know he's not wrong. If anything, he's probably understating it. Like he leads off with this later, I, hey, I, I built houses, cool, home builder. I know a few of those. He goes, no, not like this. I built world-class homes. I built Solomon, who's almost guaranteed to be the speaker here, the teacher. I built the house of God. He's, he says, I, I, I did it. David, his dad, he lined up all the materials he built an impressive house for God, the temple. It's a world-class structure that people came from far and wide just to, just to soak it in. This thing took seven years to put, seven years of his life dedicated towards building this particular house. And then he goes, and then I built my house. God's house took seven years. My house took 13 Listen, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be, so, be so forward as to build my house taller than God's house, but they were the same exact height according to their dimensions. Only I did, I did go ahead and make mine a little longer and a little wider. <laughs> and it took almost twice as long to build. I, I built houses is probably an understatement. I amassed silver and gold. yeah. He did through his trade routes. Historians at the time estimated that he probably had somewhere around 24 tons of gold shipped in to him. That's the profit that he took in after the trading annually. 
That's a huge, huge amount of gold. In fact, one wealthy uh, patron, the Queen of Sheba, modern-day Ethiopia, extremely affluent area at the time, comes and visits Solomon just to soak up, to benefit from his wisdom, and is so impressed with his knowledge, with his understanding, and the things that he teaches her, she actually gives him a gift of four and a half tons of silver. And, and just like, check this out for just a minute. And church, we are actually benefiting from that same exact wisdom for the cost of just showing up here today. Plus you get a cup of coffee. Not a bad deal. When he said, I amassed silver and gold. Yeah, probably an understatement. But listen to me, there's a layer. There's like a surface layer when he's like, yeah, I get it you're successful. But then there's like a layer underneath that one. And for me, maybe I just nerd out on this, but this, this is where it gets interesting to me. The language that's used is somewhat important. Uh, we heard it already. I just wanna, I want you to hear it again, maybe with some underlining key phrases. He says, I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. He goes on to talk about the reservoirs and water groves, flourishing trees, fruit trees. There was a, uh, Craig Bartholomew is an ancient Jewish scholar of Jewish writings, including Ecclesiastes and also Genesis. And he's writing about this and he makes this observation that I thought was so powerful. I needed to share it with you. He said, the way that the teacher is talking about how he was successful in life, the words that he uses almost exactly reflect the creation story in Genesis chapters one and two. The way that he's talking about the gardens and the trees and the flourishing and the fruit, the way that he's talking about the water reservoirs, the vineyards, what he's growing, it's clear that he's not just planting a garden. He's like recreating creation itself. He's doing, he's doing Eden, Genesis 1 and 2. He's doing paradise, heaven on earth, 2.0. New and improved this time. It's new and improved this time for Solomon because this time he doesn't have to take rules from anybody. This time there isn't a command at the end of it all that says, oh, and by the way, that one tree at the center of the garden, don't eat from it. It's tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat from it, you're done. That's just my one command. Enjoy everything that I have created you. The fruit that is growing around you, the world that I made for you, enjoy it all. But just please listen to me. One thing I asked from you, and he goes, can't do it. Solomon is saying, it's not so much that I was a king, it's that I was God. And I made my paradise here on earth, Eden 2.0. And he continues on, the very next logical step. He says in verse 10, there was no God above him, so I denied myself nothing, my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. 
You know, but it's the way he says it. It's the, the context of what else he says to the gathering, to the ecclesia. He says it kind of wryly. He, he says it like there's stories that he could share if he wanted to. Now, in fact, he says it like there's stories that he did share at times, stories that would shock, stories that would impress, stories of conquest, stories of people he's met along the way. He, he says it like behind every line, there, there's like something more than that. I denied myself nothing, whatever my eyes wanted. I wouldn't, I wouldn't refuse it. I did it. And you, you want to like ask him, if, like parties? Oh, of course. Travel? Not only did I yet see the world half the time, I made them come to me just because I could. Women? Yeah. But not like he's proud. Like he's bored. Like he's seen it all and done it all. And now he, he like gets to the end of the scroll. And he goes, this is the reward for all my toil. The tone is important. I, I don't think it's, oh, and this is finally the reward for all my toil. No, he gets to the end and he goes, and this is it, huh? This is what I work for. And it's kind of this shrug, huh, as he addresses us, the assembly. He continues in verse 11, he goes, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained. Nothing was gained under the sun. I mean, that, that's his wisdom that we get to benefit from. Somebody who has set about at work the chase and in so many different areas of life achieved so well, so highly, strives, struggles, works his finger to the bone and finally gets to the end and say, I it did it according to every metric, every observation. I objectively did it. But it's like nothing was gained. It's like I grabbed onto the wind and held it for just a moment and then it was gone because it wasn't actually there in the first place. I think we would be wise to sit there for a minute. Like, like I think we would be wise to evaluate whatever it is that we're striving for, that we're struggling toward, that we're toiling after, whatever that thing is that we're chasing, I think that we would be wise to sit down at the feet of somebody who did it probably better and achieved more and went further than we could have ever dreamed and said, how is it with you? How, how are you doing after getting there? And the answers might surprise us. 
I'd like to introduce you to somebody. This is uh, Cameron Russell. And maybe for some of you, if you can see clearly enough, um, you can see her and you can kind of see the TED background, the talk that she's given, and just start to make a few observations about her. Um, the first one that somebody might make is that she is objectively, in a worldly sense, attractive. She's giving a talk at TED, so she's probably brilliant. If you're thinking the world isn't fair, like, I get it kind of the point here. But what she is saying, the address that she's given is a good one. You can Google it later. I'd encourage you to check it out and just Google like uh, Ted. And then the title of her talk is Looks Aren't Everything. Trust me, I'm a model. She talks uh, in in the presentation that she gave about how when people ask her what it's like to be a model, like, like what's, what's your life like? And she's monumentally and objectively successful, right? You're running with that thing as far as you can, representing brands like Prada and Versace and Victoria's Secret and a number of other ones I don't recognize because they're like French and far fancier than what I'm ever gonna achieve. So like, <laughs> what's it like to be you? And she goes, there's two answers that I could give. The first one is about the people that I meet along the way, the who's who. Uh, it's, about, it's about the creativity and the drive, the passion. The, the first answer is about the gifts. Uh, makeup, clothes, but, but like cars, like, like big gifts too that people just send my way because of just the way that I look, winning what she calls the genetic lottery. Like the first one is about the travel, London, Paris, Milan, New York, LA, sometimes in the same month right? The first answer is about all of those things, about how my life is so amazing. And then she goes, there's a second answer that I don't often give because it's not what people are looking for. The second answer is an invitation to come backstage with me. And these are some of the most attractive people on the face of the earth. They have succeeded in this one thing called beauty. Far more than most of us could ever imagine. You would think that they would be the most secure people of anybody. But listen to me. She is of the opinion that models are the most physically insecure people on the planet. She's speaking for herself and she says, I can't go outside, I can't even stay home without obsessing over how I'm presenting myself to the world about how I look. I think about it constantly. I think we all do in the community. She got there, chasing, toiling, struggling, striving for whatever that thing was over the hill. Here's someone like Solomon who finally gets it and holds onto it and said, did it make you fully and finally satisfied? Did it bring contentment? Did it make you happy? And she said, no, just the opposite. The more I got of it, the more insecure I became. So what do we do? with whatever it is that you're chasing. What do we do? There has to be a different way. And the teacher here is like, I don't know what it is. I'm just offering up lessons about what not to do. He goes on and he talks in the next few verses about, uh, about the value and, and wisdom that he pursued and also and about how he amassed such great things only 
to know that he's eventually soon going to die and pass it on. And then what happens to the whole kingdom, to the next generation? Do they keep it together? Does it break apart? Spoiler alert, it breaks apart. The kingdom breaks apart and never to be united again to Solomon's son. And, and then he comes down in verse, I'd like to skip to verse 24. And he's kind of like wrapping up this segment of his talk to the ecclesia in verse 24. And he says, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? You know, it's the first time that God is mentioned in the book of Ecclesiastes. It comes at the end of chapter two in the, the Bible. It takes this long for God to even just get directly referenced. I think that's kind of a metaphor, like a stand-in for his life. It only gets to the place of when the time is running out and he's looking back and he's going, that's the thing that I missed. That's, that's what I was missing out on. God was present the whole time and I missed him. It's like there's something remarkably present about his list. There's nothing better to do than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil like today. Like, like that's all. If only I could have just found some satisfaction with the food that I was eating, with the drinks that I had. If only there was some way that I could have found satisfaction in the work that I was doing, not in a grand sense or an achievement sense or promotion sense, but just the work that I had today and say, thank you, God. I accept this gift as from your generous and benevolent, kind hand. Thank you, God, for the gift of right now. I just, I think this is so fascinating as we come back, again, come back with me to Genesis chapter one and, and chapters two, when God creates everything, all of it, and he's setting the whole thing up. And I think he does this, not because he had to or it was important to him. I think he does this because he's modeling for us what, what, how we should live our lives. Genesis chapter one, God creates all of it, creation. In day one, Day one goes about the hard work. God goes about the hard work of creating day and night. That's it. Just day and night. He has so much more creation yet to do, except for God doesn't look at everything left undone and say, oh man, there's so much to do. I'm so stressed out. There's so many emails to send. There's so much work I have to do. God looks at what he did in just one day as a model to us all. And he says what? He says, it was good. There's a lot left to do. There's a lot left undone. But that day right there, that thing, that was good. And I just have to imagine he's doing that as a model for all of us to say, whatever we did today, just this day, the work that we had, the toil that we did, the food, the drink, whatever it was, just today, right now, it's good. And don't move on to the next thing. Don't go on into the future until today we can just say, it's good. And then day two, after that day two, God created like the sea and sky. That's it. There's nothing living yet. It's just these two things. And God looks at it and he says, it's good. And then, and then land, vegetation, is a rainforest and fields and, and, and plains. And he's going, it's good. 
It's good. It's good. A day at a time. And I think there's something there about how God is like, he's like modeling for us a life lived in the present, being able to find satisfaction, not in tomorrow, newsflash, tomorrow's never going to get here. Tomorrow's always tomorrow, and the past is gone forever. It's like God is modeling right here, right now, in the present, find some way of saying, it is good. The thing that I did right here is good. Because, because if you can't be content, I think this is the key. I think another way of saying it for the teacher, if you can't be content with what you have, you won't be fully and finally satisfied with what you get. If you can't be content without it, you won't be fully and finally satisfied when you get it. Contentment, this thing, is satisfaction. It's not the it's not the fulfillment of what you want. It's the realization about right here, right now, right in front of you. And Solomon, looking back, is saying, I missed it the whole time God was here. And I missed it because I was so focused on the horizon, so focused right around. This principle is so huge, church. I think this is why people drive themselves into skyrocketing credit card debt. I think this is principle is what drives people into this relationship strife with one another because it's just this looking over, looking for more, looking for what else is out there. And we self-destruct. And the teacher is going, no, no, no. Don't look for it over the horizon. It's right in front of you. This British philosopher, G.K. Chesterton, I love this. He says, the worst part about atheism is on a beautiful day when you're content and satisfied having no one to thank for it all. I think this is why Jesus Christ in John chapter 10, verse 10 says in setting up this contrary that the thief, the thief comes to lie, to steal, to destroy. But I came that you may have life and life to the fullest. I think today, right now, encounter church, the way that the thief is, is stealing and killing and destroying is by keeping our eyes focused and distracted on what else is over the next horizon. And Jesus is saying, life to the fullest here and now is right in front of you. It's good. Find satisfaction in that. Can you pick something up that you do today, tomorrow? Some kind of organizing, sorting, emailing, building, fixing, folding, whatever the work that you have. And to be able to say, I, I feel God's good pleasure now. If this reference comes to you uh, a bit dated, it's because I read it in uh, Timothy Keller's book, uh, The King's Cross. He references a movie, and some of you are going to recognize it. Maybe the majority don't. It's Chariots of Fire. It's from the early 80s. If you don't recognize the, the movie, you would recognize the music score, even though I'm not going to do it for you. You can Google that later, too. But, but in the movie, um, it's two Olympic track athletes, two short-distance runners, who are competing. One of them, Harold Abrahams, is, from, uh, is racing on behalf of England. The other one, Eric Liddell, is running on behalf of Scotland. And these two guys could not be further apart, even though they're pursuing this in the, the same event. Uh, the one guy, Harold Abrahams, is like this, this neurotic, anxious, ridden person, tremendously gifted, tremendously successful. 
But in one of the, the scenes, he shares the motivation that he has to succeed. Before he goes out and runs, he says, and now, in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide, and I will have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? And don't you kind of get the sense, like he has a goal on the far end of that horizon. And you kind of get the sense, don't you? Even from what little you know, that if he makes the podium, even if it's the top of the podium, he's not done. You get the sense that he will never be done. His existence will never be justified. Contrast that with another runner who experiences this different kind of conflict, this different kind of pressure, because he has this social pressure from the people that that know him well, family and friends, that he shouldn't be a runner at all. He should should be a missionary and share the love of God with people in far-off lands. As an Olympic triathlete, he responds to this, and he says, I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. That's the challenge this week. When you're emailing, when you're building, when you're sorting, when you're folding laundry, when you're stacking, when you're replying, when you're sending notes of encouragement, when you're writing papers, when you're going to work, whatever it is that you do, that satisfaction and contentment is not over the hill. Because Jesus came today to give you life and life to the fullest. May you find satisfaction in your toil, in your work. May you feel God's good pleasure as you do it. I invite you to stand up. Let's pray together, church. Our gracious God in heaven, Lord, we, uh, we ask you today to help us with that, to point out all these different ways, the environments that we're going into tomorrow. Maybe they're, maybe they're boring, they're monotonous, repetitive. Maybe they're stressful. Maybe there's like a relationship strain there. Maybe we don't know if this is where you would have us and we have questions about that. But God, j- just for this moment, for this week maybe. Maybe not that we give us the strength to not look over the horizon as to what else is out there, but may we find satisfaction in whatever you gave for us for right here and for right now. Our God, would you, would you bless us with the capacity to feel your good pleasure as we work, as we toil, as we parent, as we learn this week. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Church, as we worship together, don't forget a table in the back. We've got a team ready to receive you and pray for you. Whatever you're wondering about, whatever you're struggling with, or whatever you're celebrating over this week. As we sing up over this last song, oftentimes we gather together and we worship, we sing, we preach about eternity, about the throne room of God. And what I love about this is because however much that matters, what happens in eternity matters. What happens here right now matters too. That Jesus is here with us by his Holy Spirit. God is present right here, right now. And we sing hallelujah, praise 
God above from below. Let's worship together.